it, uh, it really is the truth that these Worship God conferences have meant so much to me over the years. Uh, the, the refreshment and the encouragement that I receive already in this time through interacting with brothers and sisters and through singing with all of you, my heart is refreshed, my spirit is lifted. And this conference has been a great service to uh, not just Joseph and myself, but to our church because each year we have a group of men and women who uh, attend here and benefit from, are encouraged and instructed in their responsibilities. Joseph said this, I come to this conference uh, not because I serve in music, but because I am a pastor. And this conference has been formative for me in how I think about my pastoral responsibilities in the Sunday gathering. And so uh, what Joseph shared is my passion as well to get, to have pastors here. So if you're looking to have your pastor come, have him send me an email, you know, jmellinger at covefell.org. Should I go to the, I, I, I'll just say yes, go to the conference. Uh, but I am, I am a huge fan of uh, what God is doing here. And my heart's filled with joy. I wanted to say this as well, because when I look out at all of you and just as I'm interacting with you, I think of the ways that all of you are serving, using your gifts in your church, and it's just an extraordinary thing. Most of you have gifts that I do not have. And you are faithfully using those gifts, joyfully serving in the context of your church. And I just love it. I thank God for you and for your service. If we were here to talk just about music, I might feel a bit out of place. However, music is great. Jesus is greater. And I'm so eager seriously to behold the glory of Christ with you from Isaiah 42. And so I'd like to invite you to turn there with me. Isaiah 42 is the first of Isaiah's four servant songs. And it reveals God's just and merciful servant, which is our sermon title, God's just and merciful servant. And you know, there's a, there's a verse that God laid on my heart as I was praying for you and for this time together. I wanted to share this with you at the outset. Isaiah 61.3 says that Christ gives his people the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Isn't that a beautiful ministry of the glorious Christ? A garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And I just had a sense that there are those who have come here to this conference and because of life circumstances, you've come here with a faint spirit. And I believe that God in his kindness, in his great love for you, is going to use these next few days to replace that faint spirit with a garment of praise. And I've prayed to that end. Isaiah 42, we will read verses 1 through 13. This is God's holy and authoritative word. And I'd like to invite you to please stand for the reading of God's word. Okay. 
out of reverence for God's word and to keep you all awake. Isaiah 42, beginning in verse 1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Sela sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. May God bless the preaching of his word. You may be seated. The classic 1960 novel, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, explores the theme of justice in a small town in Alabama. A black man named Tom Robinson is accused of a crime that he did not commit, and Atticus Finch is the lawyer appointed to defend him. The town is irate that anyone would seek to defend Tom, but Atticus proves to be a model of integrity and justice. Atticus is concerned not with pleasing the majority, but with doing what is right, even at great cost. And the story uh, has become so well known and has endured over time because of the themes it addresses, because it addresses the perennial injustices of prejudice and racism, false accusations, lying, a flawed criminal justice system, sexual assault, violence, 
and murder. The word of God has something to say about injustice. In the days of Isaiah, there was rampant injustice. The prophet rebukes the people of God repeatedly for their failures in the realm of justice. In fact, beginning in chapter 1, they did not have God's heart for the poor and the marginalized. Their judicial system was unjust. Workers were mistreated. Speech was used to tear down. Orphans and widows were neglected. And the truth of God was lacking. In fact, in all of Scripture, one of the chapters in Isaiah... Isaiah 58 is one of the great chapters in all of Scripture concerning biblical justice. And in the chapter immediately following that, chapter 59, verse 15, it says, The Lord saw it, the injustice, and it displeased him that there was no justice. And you know what? It should displease us as well when there is no justice. Um, There is no one who should care more about biblical justice than the people of Christ, and there is no one who should be more skilled at discerning the presence of injustice than the people of Christ. We live in a world of injustice. This injustice takes many forms, and it touches each one of our lives. None of us, none of us have lived as justly as we ought. And we have all been affected to differing degrees, but we have all been affected by the failure of others to live justly. And there may be circumstances in your life, even now or in your past, that lead you to cry out, where is the God of justice? Or you carry perhaps some particular area of justice on your heart and there seems to be so little progress. God, you say that your ways are just. You say that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Then why do I see so much injustice in the world and in my life? Where is the God of justice? God has a glorious word for us in Isaiah 42. His response to the presence of injustice is, verse 1, behold my servant. Behold him. Behold my servant. Behold his glory. Behold his character. Behold his mighty works. God says in verse 1, I uphold him and I have chosen him. He is the anointed one. He is the one in whom my soul delights. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And he says, I have put my spirit upon him. And then here it is, the end of verse one. He will bring forth justice to the nations. into a world marred by injustice, into the darkness of sin and oppression, into the brokenness of our lives, comes the promise of God to send forth 
a just and merciful servant who would establish a worldwide societal order in which true justice reigns. Behold the glorious Christ. Behold the servant of the Lord. He will bring forth God's righteous rule in all the earth. He will be the answer to the world's greatest problems. He will be exalted in all the nations. I want to look at, let's consider three points from this passage. The third point is really just to close. The servant's glory, the servant's mission, and then the praise he received, the servant's praise. First, his glory. There is no glory that compares with the glory of Jesus Christ. There is nothing in this world that can satisfy our hearts like Christ and his steadfast love. And I am never more aware of my weakness and inadequacy than when I am trying to describe the excellency of Christ. Because it is so vast, because he is so glorious and our minds and hearts are so small, we are, as we heard in the scripture earlier, seeking to come to know that which surpasses knowledge. So can we know his glory? We can know his glory truly, but we cannot know it fully. The glory of his love, the glory of his truth, the glory of his justice, the glory of his mercy. His glory is revealed in what Jonathan Edwards called an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. Surprising no one made the t-shirt yet uh, or put it on a bumper sticker. Actually, people probably have made the t-shirt, right? I don't know why that hashtag hasn't called on. Hashtag admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. That's what is found in Christ. An admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies, meaning he is a lion and he is a lamb. He is majestic and he is meek. He is triumphant and he is tender. So on the one hand, Isaiah says, Christ is a warrior, a mighty king who, verse four, will not faint or be discouraged. He will not falter, he will not fail till he has established justice in all the earth. How easily, how quickly we grow weary. We are quick to give up, our spirits faint and discouragement overwhelms us. It is not so with Christ. In him there is this fierce determination, an unrelenting zeal that works and fights tirelessly on our behalf. Verse 13 says, the Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. This is our Lord and Savior. I imagine it like one of those action movies, you see this plot all the time where the former CIA operative has someone kidnap his wife or his daughter, and so he is set on taking action. Of course, he can't involve the police for some reason, 
but he will use every skill he learned in black ops to take out the bad guys and to rescue the one he loves. It just so happens that his martial arts skills are not at all rusty. He apparently keeps a small artillery in his basement and he gives the bad guys the I will find you speech. You know, I have skills that make me a nightmare for people like you and I will hunt you down. That, that determination, I will not rest until it is accomplished is like the determination of the anointed one who declares, I will not faint. I will not give up. Nothing can stop me. No opposition, no obstacle can stand in my way. I will rescue a people for my praise and faithfully bring forth justice in all of the earth. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the mighty king whom we worship and praise. At the same time, admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies the Lord Jesus Christ is extraordinarily gentle, tender, and full of mercy. He comes as a servant. Verse 2 says, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. He came into the world not with pomp and fanfare, but in humility. And verse 3, this is a great and precious promise for us today. Take this verse with you for the rest of your life. Verse three, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. There is a special tenderness that Christ has toward the weak. Do you believe that in your heart? Many of us know from our own experience in life, we can look back on life's circumstances and see the Lord's dealings with us throughout our lives and praise him for the fact that he does not break a bruised reed or quench a faintly burning wick. He looks upon the weak and the wounded. He looks upon the sick and the sore and he cares for us and he helps us as only he can. The Puritan Richard Sibbs wrote a glorious book called The Bruised Reed. He says, as a mother is tenderest toward the most diseased and weakest child, so does Christ most mercifully incline to the weakest. You may find yourself at a point in life where your soul is weak and weary. Perhaps you are discouraged. Perhaps you are exhausted. Christ invites us. He invites all who labor and are heavy laden even now to come to him. To come to him and find rest and strength for your soul. It is, it is no small part of the glory of Christ that he is patient and tender with bruised reeds. And we ought to learn to praise him for this glorious part of his character. In Isaiah's day, shepherds used reeds, a thin plant for several purposes. One of them was that uh, they used them to make an instrument like a flute to make music. I don't know anything about what this instrument is. All of the things that you were giving away earlier, Bob, I don't know what any of them were. 
um, but some sort of flute-like instrument they would use the reed. But if the reed was if the reed was bruised, then the shepherd had no use for it, and so they would discard it. You may feel like a damaged reed in life, believing that you are incapable of making music for the Lord. Perhaps incapable of making the sounds, of writing the lyrics you once did, serving in the ways that you once did. You may feel like the fire of your soul is dim. You consider yourself a faintly burning wick that is giving off little or no light for the Lord. Friends, today, God is directing your attention and he is directing your trust to the one who will not let the reed be broken, the one who will not let the fire be extinguished. I love that picture in Pilgrim's Progress when Christian goes to the interpreter's house and in that room there is a fireplace. We're told the flames from the fireplace grew larger and hotter even though there was someone continually throwing water on it trying to quench it. That's the picture. And Christian says, what does this mean? The interpreter says, this fire is the work of transformation and growth in grace that God works in the heart. The one throwing water on the flames trying to extinguish it is the devil. But as you see, the fire burns higher and hotter despite his efforts to put it out. And then he says, now let me show you the reason for that. And so the interpreter took Christian to the other side of the wall where he saw a man with a vessel of oil in his hand from which he secretly funneled oil into the fire. And Christian said, what does this mean? The interpreter answered, this is Christ who continually with the oil of his grace maintains the work already begun in the heart. And he says, no matter what the devil tries to do, the gracious work that Christ is doing in the souls of his people only increases. And he adds, you saw that the man stood behind the wall to maintain the fire. That is to teach you that it is hard for the one being tempted to see how this work of grace is maintained in the soul. We don't understand. It is difficult for us to comprehend. We see the fires of our faith growing small. We feel the enemy, Satan, hurling buckets of water upon the fires of our faith. We're aware of our weakness. We fear that we may despair. But here, brothers and sisters, we're told Christ is doing a gracious work in your life. He stands behind that wall with the oil of his strength sustaining the fire of your soul so that no matter what the devil tries to do, the fire will continue to burn brighter and brighter. Christ will sustain you. The faintly burning wick, he will not quench. This is the glory of the servant. His great power gives him the ability to help us. He fights like a man of war and his great love gives us the desire to help us. A bruised reed, he will not break. Now, second point, the servant's mission. The emphasis of this 
passage has to do with the servant's mission to bring justice to all nations. It's repeated in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 4. He will bring forth justice in all of the earth. Now, I wonder what comes to mind when you think about that. The servant will establish justice in all of the earth. This is probably a good time to pause and to point out that there is a lot of confusion in our day about what justice is. Uh, Some Christians are suspicious of the very category and talk about it far less than Scripture does, and others uncritically embrace secular thinking about justice. The mistake that I made most of my life, even as a Christian, was to define justice quite narrowly. Uh, When we think of justice today, we tend to think only of fair procedures, righteous laws, unbiased judgments, upholding the rights of others, so that as long as I haven't bribed anyone or killed someone or stolen someone's ox, then basically, wow, uh, look at me, I'm walking in perfect justice. And from that narrow definition, we tend to think that the gap between God's justice and ours is not so great, and that the difference between the justice in our country and the justice in the new heavens and the new earth is not so great. And in this way, we rob Christ of that glory that is uniquely his as the just servant who establishes God's justice in all the earth. In scripture, the meaning of justice is far more expansive. It involves both punishing the wicked and lifting up the needy and the oppressed. It includes generosity. It includes mercy. Deuteronomy 10:18 says, "The Lord executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing." The book of Isaiah starts in chapter 1 verse 27 by saying, "Zion shall be redeemed by justice." And the psalmist prays, "O Lord, according to your justice, give me life." Psalm 119 verse 149. In fact, throughout the book of Psalms, the people of God often praise the Lord because he is a just God who is the bringer of justice. This is no small part of their praise. Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Psalm 103, verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Psalm 140, verse 12, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. The psalmist praises the God of generous justice in Psalm 146, verses 7 through 9, when he says that it is the Lord who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves righteousness. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. What does it mean that God is just and that he does justice? It means that he is a perfect king. He is a righteous judge. He is a generous father. He is a glorious savior. And he's promised that in Christ, he will establish perfect justice 
in a world that is presently marred by sin and abuse and oppression and violence. What does that promise of justice mean? Well, it means, follow this, first and foremost, it means that sinners will be rescued from the oppressive tyranny of sin and death. The Israelites were in captivity in Babylon, yet their greatest need was not release from physical bondage, but release from the penalty and power of sin. If God is to work justice for the oppressed, he must deal with the reign of sin. If God is to work justice, see, justice is not accomplished primarily through economic development, social freedom, political reform, humanitarian relief. Yes, ultimate justice will include all things made new, the entire cosmos gloriously set free from bondage to decay. But if Christ is to meet our greatest need, the world's greatest need, he must restore sinners to God. There's a transition in verses 5 and 6 where God shifts from talking about the servant to addressing the servant directly. Verse 6 says, I give you as a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I read that, I'm immediately reminded of that scene in Andrew Peterson's Wingfeather Saga, a boy named Janner finds himself trapped in a dark and terrible place called the Fork Factory, where many stolen children are enslaved and used to make weapons and other items. Many of the children had spent years in darkness and misery, treated with cruelty. They're referred to as tools. Their names are not used. And the story is beautifully told of those children finally being set free. As the evil overseer who runs the factory is defeated and the children are led into safety and beams of sunlight. And Peterson describes how the children held their hands up to the light and then they're all gave way to rejoicing and celebration. I give you as a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Friends, this is the rescue that God in Christ has worked for us. Behold my servant, says the Lord. Behold the one who came on a mission to bring out prisoners from the dungeon. The people who have dwelled in darkness have seen a great light. He is the light of the world. And when he came, the dungeon flamed with light. When he came, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When he came, your chains fell off. When he came, your heart was set free. Christian, never forget. Never forget the rescue he has worked. Never forget that God burst your bonds apart. 
Never forget when you were redeemed by justice and the light of Christ shined into your darkened heart. I was raised in a Christian home. When I was a teenager, I turned away from everything my parents taught me. I didn't want to go to church. I didn't want to live for God. I rebelled. If you would have, when I was a teenager, our church met in a hotel and there were tables in front of a lot of the seats. If you would have visited there on a Sunday morning, one of the first things you would have noticed was the disgruntled teenager sitting in the front row with his head down in his arm the entire service through the singing and through his dad's sermon because I wanted nothing to do with God or with the people of God or with the word of God or with the son of God. But you know from the fact that I am standing here that my sin and my rebellion were not the end of the story. What happened? A just and merciful servant came to open eyes that were blind and to set this prisoner free. Never forget the work that God has done. In order to establish justice, you can think of it this way, God must have a people who are just and righteous. Later in the servant song of 53, God explains how this would happen. It would in fact be through a perversion of human justice by oppression and mistreatment, it says in Isaiah 53, that something glorious would happen. Isaiah 53, 11 says, the righteous one, the just one, my servant shall make many to be counted just and he shall bear their iniquities. This is what we have. This is what we celebrate. In the gospel, the God of justice has acted in his son to uphold his justice and to declare sinners justified by grace alone. God put forward his son as a propitiation by his blood, Romans 3, so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That Christ will establish justice is a promise that he will have a people who are justified by his blood. And then having justified us, he makes us a people who, who love doing justice. So don't think, well, since Je Jesus alone establishes ultimate justice, I guess that means I don't need to pursue it. In Isaiah, the logic is the exact opposite of that. Because the king has brought us into his kingdom, we are to be like him. And therefore, Isaiah 1.17, we must learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Isaiah 58, 6 and 7, is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. The God of justice is establishing justice in all the earth and he calls us to be a people of justice. A people who not only refrain from evil, 
but a people who treat a people who treat others rightly, who help the weak and lift up the vulnerable, who give to the needy, who practice biblical speech ethics, who resist greed, work faithfully, walk in generosity. This is the people that God, the God of justice, is making us to be. That the servant will establish justice in all the earth ultimately and gloriously means that every injustice will be rectified by him. And we need to let this soak into our souls. We need to consider what this means because in this world we are so painfully aware of the presence of injustice. In recent days alone, we have read news of a California shooting that left four people dead, including two children. A militant group massacres 55 people at a funeral in Nigeria. An attack at an Afghan political office kills at least 20. And beyond this, we see how people are mistreated, the ways that injustice works itself into the structures of society, the way that past injustices continue to impact communities. We see unjust laws. We see how evildoers go unpunished. We see how the vulnerable are neglected, how power is misused, how slander destroys good people. We see child prostitution, cruel child labor, abuse, abortion, genocide, ethnic violence, corrupt governments, religious persecution, and on and on. It is more than we can bear. We have shed tears and our hearts have broken when we consider the darkness that covers the earth and we long for the day. We long for the day when justice will reign. Enter the promise of God that speaks to our troubled hearts and gives us a rock-solid hope for the future. The promise, the promise that his chosen and beloved servant will establish justice, not only in our hearts and lives, but in all the earth. Did you know God is aware of every injustice in your life and in the world? He wants us to know he sees, he cares, and he will act to bring all injustice to an end. In C.S. Lewis's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Mr. Beaver recites a rhyme that is famous in Narnia, speaking of a time to come. Wrongs will be made right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Brothers and sisters, we too have an ancient promise. A promise of a servant who establishes justice in all the earth. And when he comes again, he will make all things new. Yes. Gary, Gary Haugen, who has done much good working for justice. He's the, the founder and CEO of International Justice Mission. He says this, he says, we are not caught up in a Pollyanna-like dream of bringing heaven to earth and abolishing injustice. 
On the contrary, we know that an ocean of oppression will pound humanity until, until he whom even the wind and waves obey shall command the storm to cease. That's the servant's mission. And we believe the good news that he will return to abolish injustice, to command by the word of his power that oppression cease. We believe that all things will be reconciled under this glorious Christ, that all tears will be wiped from our eyes, that all sorrow and suffering and injustice will one day end, which brings us to the last point, which is the servant's praise. All of this, his glory, his mission, leads to the outburst of loudest praise in verses 10 through 12. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. The end of the earth, where have we heard that? Well. That is the extent of the justice that this servant establishes. If the Lord will establish justice in all the earth, verse 4, well, then there must be praise from all the earth. The promise of worldwide justice calls for a response of worldwide praise. Verse 9 says that the former things are gone, and new things I now declare. And then verse 10 calls for a new song that is based on the new work that God will do for his servants. So for every new thing God does, let there be a new song of praise from his people. We are a singing people. I love what there's... Um, Bob has this in his book, True Worshipers. He's talking about how we... Uh, it's not a matter of... Uh, of whether or not you can sing. We are mandated to sing all who have been rescued. And then he, he says this, um, the question is not, do I have a voice? The question is, do I have a song? Christian, you have a song. You have a song that has been put in your heart by the Redeemer, a song of his redeeming love. And here is Isaiah, the worship leader, expressing his own sense of joyful wonder, calling others to join in. He says, you who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits, all the earth, all creatures of our God and King, sailors and sea creatures, the coastlands and the deserts, those in villages and on mountaintops, Sing for joy. Shout to the Lord. Declare his praise and the wonders he has done. Verse 11 says, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountain. I don't understand why there isn't more shouting in our churches. And why there is not more of a dominant mood of joyful celebration when we gather. I wanted to see what John Calvin said about this shouting. So I opened his commentary this week. On this passage, he says this, Isaiah explains what the nature of that shouting will be. Tell us, John. Isaiah explains what the nature of that shouting will be, that is, to celebrate the praises of God, for his goodness and mercy will be seen everywhere. 
He says the prophet enjoins them to celebrate this redemption with a cheerful voice because the blessed consequences of it will be shared by all the nations. We, We sing, we shout to the Lord with a cheerful voice even in the midst of an unjust world. We are the singing people. We are the shouting people for we know the promises of God will come to pass. The Lord Jesus Christ will faithfully bring forth justice. This just and merciful servant will come again in glory. And when he does, justice will roll down. The Messiah comes riding on a white horse full of power as king of kings and lord of lords and justice will roll down. And the poor and the vulnerable will be protected and bruised reeds will be forever healed and justice will roll down. And those who perpetuate evil will be judged. The enemies of God will cower before him and justice will roll down. We who were once blind and imprisoned, having been redeemed by justice, we will dwell with God forever in his presence and justice will roll down. And in that day, in that day, we will all join together as the people of Christ from every nation. And we will sing, we will sing a new song to the glory of the lamb who was slain. A new song of the servant who brought forth justice in all the earth. He said he would do it and he did. We will sing a new song of the Savior who is matchless in glory. Friends, our singing now anticipates that future praise. What a glorious Savior we have in this Christ. Words fail us. Our praises cannot exhaust what he is worthy of. We will spend all our days and all eternity exalting and praising this glorious Christ, singing with him with hearts of joy, shouting to the Lord for what he has done. Music is great. Jesus is greater. All praise be to the glorious Christ. Amen. Amen.